So we're going to jump into Esther um, chapter 4. We're in a reading plan through uh, the book of the Bible, the whole Bible, and we're reading through it. And, um, and so uh, that reading plan is online if you want to join us. But uh, this week we found ourselves in the book of Esther. Now, to give you some context, the book of Esther takes place after the Babylonian captivity. So the Israelites, they were taken captive. They were conquered by, by Babylon, taken uh, captive as exiles. And then after uh, many years, King Cyrus, who is now the Medo-Persian king, um, King Cyrus allowed the, the Jewish people to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. So the temple was destroyed in the Babylonian captivity. So now it's, he said, rebuild your temple. You can go back to Jerusalem. But um, millions of, of people were scattered throughout the Persian Empire now. And so many Jews, millions of them, uh, did not return to Jerusalem. They're kind of scattered throughout the Persian Empire. And at this point in time, the Persian Empire is large and strong. It is the largest, most powerful nation and army in the world at the time. And um, so they're, they're kind of scattered around. And the book of Esther, although it does, it does not mention God at all. Isn't that strange? There's a book in the Bible. There's two, actually. But there's this book that doesn't mention God's name at all, but it does not mean that God is not at work. And we see the hand of God at work throughout the whole book. And we'll talk about kind of uh, some more about his, him not being mentioned later. But um, in our study, I don't know if you've noticed over the past many weeks um, through, the, through the Bible, we've been studying some mighty men of God who did incredible things um, in the Old Testament, and uh, people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and, uh, and David, and Joseph, and so, some really Joshua. We've been seeing these mighty men of God that God's used. Well, today we get the treat of seeing a mighty woman of God who is used mightily to help save the people of God. And so we're in Esther chapter 4. I want to read um, uh, the entire chapter, actually, and then we will pray, okay? Are you here? Are you ready? All right. Uh, Esther 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every providence, whether, um, wherever the king's command and decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. And when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for uh, Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went 
out to Mordecai to open the, of the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay uh, into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Now Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg for his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's providence uh, know that if any man, woman, or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that the king's palace in the king's palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you kept silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for these three days, night or day, and that I, my young women, will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, church. Father in heaven, we, um, Father, I just thank you, God, for your work among us already this morning, that your spirits work in our hearts and in our lives. I thank you for your presence here moving among us. Lord, we humbly come before your word now and ask that you would teach us, God, that you would instruct and encourage and edify and challenge and rebuke and that all those things would take place today as we are confronted by your word through Esther. And so I pray, teach us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit and guide my speech, that it would be honoring and glorifying to you, that it would be edifying to the, to the gathering here, God, and that it help me to rightly divide the word of truth this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's go back to verse 1. Um, or maybe, maybe I should start with an introduction, which is this. Um, <laughs> have you ever asked the question, um, why am I here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like that's a pretty basic question, right? Maybe more specifically, you're wondering, why, why am I here in the, play, in the town you're in or in the job you're in? And you're kind of curious to, to what is God doing in me or through me or around? What is God? Why am I here? Uh, well, the book of Esther helps us answer that question. It helps us see what God is doing in us and through us and among us 
in the everyday details of life. And there are four scenes in this chapter. And we're going to take them one by one. And let's start with the first. And the first scene is this, the crisis of the Jews. The crisis of the Jews. Now back to verse 1. When Mordecai learned that all had been done. When he learned all that had been done. Let's... Um, Let's kind of bring us up to speed with the first three chapters. I mean, the book of Esther is incredible. If, if you haven't read it, you need to go read it. It's like reading, a, it's like watching an action movie drama romance. It's incredible. There's, there's, there's tension, and there's drama, and there's, and there's violence, and there, there's, all, like, there's betrayal. There's all types of stuff happening in the book of Esther. It reads incredible. It's a great read. It's a short read. You, you would enjoy it if you do it, but... The way it starts out is you have uh, King Ashuarius. I, I have a hard time pronouncing names, guys. But he's better known throughout history as King Xerxes, right? How do you say that? Good, you know it. So <clears throat> that's who this king is. He's one of the most powerful kings, well-known throughout history, this king. And there's a time where he says, I'm going I'm to throw a party, and I'm going to show off all of my stuff. And so you might say, well, how long would it take for, for you to show off all your cool stuff, like your house and your car and your toys? How long? Maybe like 20 minutes or less for me. It's like, yeah, here it is. Um, the king, 180 days. 180 days. He's like, here's this and here's that. And he's showing off all his stuff, having this big party, uh, you know, showing everything off. And then after the 180 days, he's like, hey, let's do a party. And so he throws a seven-day party, and there's drinking, and there's partying, and there's, it's just going on for seven days. It's quite, a, it's quite a scene. But then, at the end of it all, he's like, wait, I have one more thing that I forgot to show off. It's kind of my crown jewel. It is my wife. Let me show off the queen. And so he calls for his queen, Queen Vashti. Queen, come and, and strut your stuff for all to see. Right? And there's some hints on, you know, put on something interesting or not. You know, so it, there's all this happening. Well, he calls out his wife. Well, to Queen Vashti's credit, she says, um, no. You have lost your mind. You can show off all your toys. I'm not a toy. I'm not doing it. And she refuses to be paraded around as some object for people to look at, and this angers not only the king, but some of his advisors kind of advise, hey, you can't let the queen do this because other people are going to get other ideas throughout the kingdom. And so he's advised, banish the queen. So he banishes her. We don't really know exactly what happens to her. Does he, it doesn't say that they kill her, but he banishes her. And um, so now he gets the idea, some, some time has passed, and he says, all right, well, I need a new queen. And what's the best way to, to find a queen is to have a beauty competition. And so he throws, he, let's, have a, let's find the most beautiful women in all of the land and bring them in for a beauty contest. And so that's what they do. It's kind of like the show The Bachelor. All right, let's, let's bring all these beautiful women in. We'll have a contest and we'll see whoever gets the last rose, you know, they, they win. And so they bring all these women in. The historian Josephus, the ancient historian Josephus, says that there was a 400 women in this competition. So they bring them in, and they spend a year um, getting ready for the competition. 
in the palace. They're giving all the makeups and the perfumes and getting their skin all beautiful and everything right. So they spend a year getting ready for the competition, and now the competition begins to go. And uh, all these women go before the king and oohs and ahs and all of that. And then Esther comes. And, and she's, it says that she's the most beautiful in all the land. She is the most beautiful one of them all. And so the king says her. And he chooses Esther to win the last rose. Okay? He chooses her. And she then becomes the queen. Well, this other scene's happening where Mordecai, Mordecai is Esther's older cousin, but he's also her adopted father. So Mordecai um, raised Esther from a young age, although he is her cousin. So Mordecai tells Esther, this is great, you won, but keep your Jewishness hidden. Don't tell anybody that you're Jewish because at the time there's all this kind of prejudice and, and you know, animosity against the Jewish people. So he's like, just don't tell anybody. It's not really important and it'll just get you into trouble. But um, Mordecai also in the same time, he's, uh, he's also somehow inside the palace. He has some position there and he overhears a plot from a couple of people who are plotting to kill the king. And so he tells Esther and says, Esther, you need to go tell the king. These people are plotting against him. And the king, you know, is like, oh, thanks. And then he has those people killed. And he saves the life of the, of the king. Now that comes into play later in the story. But in the meantime, a guy named Haman, he's kind of the, the villain of the story. He rises to political power. And he is your typical sleazy politician. And uh, one of the edicts that was put out is that whenever Haman would walk uh, by or walk through the streets or walk through the gate, you would bow in homage before Haman. Oh, Haman. You know, and everybody would bow before him. But one person wouldn't bow, and that was Mordecai. Mordecai's like, I'm not bowing to this sleazeball. Not happening. And that irritates Haman. Because he's a narcissist. How dare you not bow before me? So then Haman sets out to not only kill Mordecai, but to kill all of Mordecai's people. So he puts a plan before the king. And he kind of veils it and just says, hey, king, there's a group of people. He doesn't say who they are. He doesn't say the Jewish people. He says there's a group of people, and they're kind of causing trouble in the kingdom, and they're trying to raise up against the kingdom of Persia. Like, can we just kill them all? Give me your signet ring. I'll, I'll put a decree out, and we'll take care of this problem. And the king says, sounds good to me. So they put out this edict. They cast some lots to choose a day on when's a, when's a good day to kill all the Jewish people. And they choose sometime in December. Sometime in December will be a good day. And so then they sent out a decree to all the land. On this day in December, all the Jewish people will be killed. We see this in Esther chapter 3, verse 12 through 15, where he says, Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors and all the uh, provinces and the officials of all the people who every province in the town script 
own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Xerxes. And he sealed with the king. I want to see you try to pronounce these names in front of a bunch of people. I like, I do it, I do it okay. I'll like, and then I come out here and it's, it's hard. But anyway, so they, he sealed it with the king's ring. And letters were sent by carriers to all the king's provinces and instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and plunder their goods. A copy of the document was issued in a decree in every province and proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The carriers went out and hurried by order to the, of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa and uh, Citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So... The issue is, is sent out to all the land in every language that so everyone knows. We're going to kill all the Jews. And then the king and Haman are like, all right, it's a good day's work. Meanwhile, everyone, all the Jewish people are thrown into confusion. So that's where, back to verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, all this that we just talked about, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry. This um, word cried out here, he, he's kind of grieving and, and wailing, is the same verb used in Jonah 3 when the king of Nineveh, uh, issued a proclamation. The word proclamation is the same word, uh, cried out. And he issued this decree to all the people, issuing a fast to cover themselves in sackcloth and call upon God, if you remember the story of Jonah. What's interesting with this parallel between Esther and Jonah is that the action of the Ninevites, the proclamation, the crying out, the sackcloth, the ashes, the fasting, was all in anticipation of a coming disaster. And that's exactly where Mordecai and all the Jews find themselves in a place where they are anticipating a coming disaster. So he cries out, and in verse 2, he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth and ashes, um, sackcloth made you uncomfortable. It kind of reminded your body, your, your soul, that, uh, of the discomfort that you have experienced or that you're going to experience. You would sit in sackcloth and ashes if you were grieving a loss or if you were anticipating a loss. So it's kind of a symbol of that. And ashes is the, you know, the idea of from ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And we're... we're, we're there's an impending death happening or, or a death just occurred when you see sackcloth and ashes there. And in every province, where, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Great mourning, fasting, weeping, lamenting. These are the actions that are characteristic of an appeal to God for a response. Many times this is coupled by repentance. And it's the idea of uh, there's, there's a potential danger of impending calamity on the horizon. And they're grieving it. They're lamenting it. It's a, 
this public display of mourning is important because with the Jewish uh, display publicly, but especially Mordecai's public display of mourning gets the attention of influential people, namely Esther. And so we have the crisis of the Jews. And the second scene is the concern of Esther. We first see that she's concerned with Mordecai. Look at verse 4. When Esther's uh, young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed. She was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Uh, Deeply distressed here, one commentator said that this is an unusual form of the verb heal, which is used to describe a physical response uh, of pain or anguish. Uh, Have you ever been so worried that you got physically sick? Yeah, that's what it's trying to describe here. It wasn't just I was worried. It was I I was sick. I was in physical anguish because of what was happening. This is how Esther feels about it. And so she was deeply distressed when she heard this. And she tries to send some clothes to Mordecai. This is not really, I don't think she's just like, hey, Mordecai, you don't have any good clothes. Here's some. Like, clean yourself up, Mordecai. I think Mordecai couldn't enter the palace being in sackcloth and ashes. I think she's doing this because she wants Mordecai to come in so they can have a personal conversation and and try to figure this out. But Mordecai, he's committed to his... Um, his grieving. Verse 5, Then Esther called, and uh, Hathash, one of the uh, king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. And you wonder, how could Esther not know what was going on? And it's because she had been secluded in the palace uh, to the women's quarters. You know, the palace was almost like a prison of sorts. And so she wasn't totally aware of all the things happening outside. So she's trying to learn and figure out what's going on here. Verse 6, here's Mordecai's plan. Uh, Hathak um, went to Mordecai in an open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. So Haman was a rich man, and he was going to fund this whole genocide. Verse 8, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg for his favor and plead with him on behalf of the people. And Hathak went and told Esther, what Mordecai had said. So Esther's concerned for Mordecai. What's going on, Mordecai? Tell us more. He sends back a message and a plan. He commands her. Go to the king. Plead on behalf of your people. Do something. You're the only one who can do something. But then she, not only is she concerned for Mordecai, she becomes concerned then for herself. Look at verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes into the 
to the king inside the inner court without being called, but there is one law to be put to death except the one whom the king holds the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And so Esther hesitates here. She's not like, okay, I'll do it. She's, she's like, this is dangerous. This is dangerous. Again, the, the ancient historian Josephus said this about this. He said, now the king had made a law that none of his own people should approach him unless they were called. And when he sat upon his throne, and men with axes in their hands stood around about his throne in order to punish such as approached to him without being called. And so similarly to how the President of the United States has Secret Service, who's always around, armed, and ready to protect the President, similarly he has Secret Service around him, but... In this case, if anyone approaches him, you die. He's like, hey, this is... But here's the thing. Don't, don't some Christians view God this way? Like he's unapproachable. I only go to him for the big stuff. I have to use big fancy words. Fortunately for us, our God is approachable. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. Fortunately for us, we have a God who's like, the door's always open. Come to me whenever you want. The scepter is, is extended anytime. Come to me. I want to hear from you. But not so with this king. And she says, I haven't been called for 30 days. This is the queen. She's like, I haven't seen, I haven't seen the king in... And 30 days. Now, one of the things that we know pretty confidently is that uh, the king, he didn't sleep alone. And so you can imagine the king is preoccupied with other things and potentially other women. And she's like, I haven't, like, maybe I've lost some favor in his eyes. We haven't seen each other in a while. Maybe I'm, I'm not quite you know, the apple of his eye like I used to be, and so I haven't seen him in a while, and so I don't have an open invitation to the throne of the king, and if I go in there unannounced, he's going to kill me. And this is, I think this is a valid concern she has. I think any of us, if it's like, do this, and you will die, we'd be like, oh, maybe we should think about this. And so that's what she says to Mordecai. Hey, can, maybe, maybe not. Is there another way? Look, God will ask you to take risks for the kingdom. I think actually sometimes if we're, if, if we're not taking any risks for the kingdom of God, are we living by faith? Because God asks us to do hard things many times. So we see the concern of Esther. She hesitates, but then the third scene is this, the call of Mordecai. The call of Mordecai, verse um, 12 And they told Mordecai what Esther said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do, do not think... To yourself, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all of the other Jews. So he's like, do not think um, you will escape. He's like, do you not remember? You're Jewish. The decree was to kill all Jewish people. You're one of them. He's like, don't think you're going to escape this. They'll find out, and then they will kill you. 
What I love about Mordecai is that he presses her. He, he, he commands her, encourages her to do something, to, to act. But then whenever she gives resistance, he presses her again. And, and, and sometimes we need friends like Mordecai who are willing to encourage us and push us to do what is right. Do you have friends like that in your life? Not just yes men and yes women who just agree with you and, yeah, girl, yeah, girl, he, he's, he's a scumbag. You need to leave him. No, we need, we need people who encourage us to do what's right. I know it's hard. Stick in there. Let's get you some help. You know, what can we do? Let, let me encourage you to do the right thing. We need friends like Mordecai. There's two important things that we see about the providence of God in, this, in these verses. Two important things about the providence of God. First is that God's purposes are not dependent on us. Look at verse 14. He says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. He's like, Esther... You need to do something. But one of the things we learn about the providence of God, God's hand in the, in the circumstances of life to, to work out his purposes, is that he wants us, but he doesn't, it doesn't all depend on us. Um, he's like, if you don't do this, someone else will. And his confidence that someone else would rise and do something to deliver the Jews probably was rooted in, in his belief and his confidence in the promise of God. Because God made a promise to uh, their father of their faith, Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, where he says this in verse 1 of chapter 12 of Genesis, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so Mordecai's faith is rooted in the promises of God that, hey, if you don't do something God's going to keep his promise regardless. And somebody will come to rise because God's people will be blessed. And those who dishonor God's people will be cursed. So God will either take care of us through you or in spite of you. There was a, if you've been here a while, you've heard me tell this story more than once probably. But if you're new, maybe this is fresh for you. I was a youth pastor and went to a youth conference, um, took the students to youth conference. There was a special youth pastor breakout session. So we had our own room, our own kind of worship leader and speaker to encourage the youth pastors. And we're in this room, and, um, and at one point we're sharing kind of uh, things, challenges in our youth ministry. And somebody, a lady in the back, a couple rows, she shared some challenges in her church, whatever. So we moved on. We moved into worship we're all worshiping, everybody's standing, all these youth pastors standing, worshiping there, and I feel the Holy Spirit tell me, not audibly, of course, but I, hear, I feel a strong impression, one of the strongest impressions I've received. Go pray for that woman. I'm like, no, God, no. 
I mean, you all know, you all know me. I'm introverted, okay? <clears throat> and so, I'm like, no, God, someone else maybe. <laughs> and I just, it just got stronger. No, go pray for that woman. Oh, like, I don't want, like, maybe, maybe once we dismiss, you know, once worship's over, I don't want to be a disturbance. I was kind of in the middle of the rows. I don't want to, like, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Please, God. It just got stronger and stronger, and I just kept saying no, which is dangerous. All of a sudden, the youth pastor next to me, he pushes me out of the way like, like, like he's hurried. And I see him, and he goes and, and starts praying for that woman. He goes up to her and prays for her. I was like, that's so wild. So I asked him afterwards. I said, tell me, uh, what made you go pray for that woman? And he said, I was sitting there, and God said, go pray for her. And I was sitting there arguing with God back and forth. And then he said, son? <laughs> and I was like, yes, Lord. And he, and he, and he went. And I was like, how is that possible? We were both getting such a strong impression from God. And what I learned there is if you don't obey, someone will. God's still going to accomplish his purposes. The thing is that whenever we don't obey, we just miss out on some things. We miss out. God is sovereign to accomplish His purpose through us or through someone else. And there are consequences for our silence. It says right there in verse 14, He says, you know, if you, someone else will, but if you don't, your father's house, you and your father's house will perish. That there's consequences for disobedience, for silence and when we refuse to obey God, we miss out on, on the blessing that comes with being obedient to God. Esther here was rewarded for her obedience. And she was honored throughout history for her courage. I mean, we're still talking about her today. Lift her up as an example of great faith and courage. And we have to realize that God, the whole world does not depend on us. God wants to use us. He desires to use us. But he's going to accomplish his purposes with or without us. And a lot of times we just miss out on what God wants to do. We miss out, miss out on the blessing, and sometimes we even experience a, a consequence for it. Second idea, important thing about the providence of God is, providence of God, is that God is always positioning us according to his purpose. God is always positioning us according to his purpose. Verse 14 again, he ends it and says, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Who knows? If, if maybe this is the reason why you won the beauty competition, why you became the queen. Who knows if you're in the palace, in a position of influence, for just a time as this, to save the people of God. And have you ever wondered? Have you ever wondered why you ended up where you are? Have you ever asked why you got the particular job that you have? Have you asked why you met those particular group of friends? Why you went to that particular college? why you were led to that, this particular church, why you live in that particular town, why you have those particular neighbors, 
why your kids go to that particular school that caused you to meet those particular set of parents and become friends with them. Have you ever asked why? What is God doing? What's my role to play here? Providential hand in your life and wondered why does he have you where you are for such a time as this? How is God orchestrating the details of your life to fulfill his purpose and his plan for you and through you? Most of the time when God is doing something, it's not just for us, but it's for the benefit of others around us. Have you ever, maybe you're like, but I'm not in the most ideal situation. Well, neither is Esther. She's not in the most ideal situation either. Or maybe you might feel like my situation is just so mundane, so average. But that's what God wants to, God works in the mundane details of life to accomplish his purposes and to reach people for his kingdom. Could it be that God has you where you are or will move you where he wants you to be, not for you, but for the people around you because he wants to do something through you? See, God is always positioning us according to his purpose. It's not by accident or coincidence that you are where you are. You might say, but I'm just a mom. But you have those sons or daughters to influence for just a time as this. You might say, well, I'm just a nurse. But God's placed you with those patients for just a time as this. You might say, but I'm just retired. Maybe God's brought you to a place where he now, you now can mentor people who are younger than you in the Lord. Or maybe he's given you some, now some time to be able to volunteer because your skill set is needed for just a time as this. You might say, well, I just transferred here for work. I didn't even get to choose this assignment here. I didn't ask for this. But maybe... Maybe you have a coworker who needs Christ and you've been placed in their life for just a time as this. Or you could say, I'm just a broke college student. Well, maybe you've been placed in a class with someone who is lonely and depressed and needs a friend who knows Jesus for just a time as this. That wherever you are is not by accident because God is always positioning us according to his purposes. Big doors swing on small hinges. When you think that God isn't working, do not be deceived. He's doing big things with small people. Who does God choose to accomplish his purposes here? A beauty queen. What did she do to get where she is? She was just beautiful. He can use anyone. 
to accomplish His purposes. The whole world is broken because of sin. All of the world has been affected. All different types of people and environments are broken because of sin. And God uses a variety of different types of people to help restore the brokenness of the world. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, says this, you've been wishing for another position where you could do something for Jesus. Do not wish for anything of the kind, but serve him where you are. Serve him where you are. And so God um, many times uses the good in our life for his glory, but then God also allows us to go through difficulty and redeems it for his glory. And so what is it in your life? You've been placed here on the Mississippi Gulf Coast in the United States of America in the year 2023. You were made for this moment. You weren't made to live a century ago. You were made to live in this moment. You weren't made to live somewhere. You were made for this moment. And God's going to use you right where you are. You may be exactly where God wants you. So God is in control. He is providentially working through the circumstances of life to accomplish his purposes. But even though God is in control, we still have a responsibility to act. Esther still, even though God's providential and Mordecai knows that and the theology is whether or not you obey, God's going to do it. But then Esther still has a responsibility to do something. And she does. And that's the final scene, the courage of Esther. Look at verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. She says, fast on my behalf. Fasting um, almost always is linked with prayer, uh, a dependent prayer. And um, Jesus reminds us actually that, that there are some special spiritual battles that sometimes require special preparation through prayer and fasting. Whenever his disciples in Matthew uh, 17, when his disciples couldn't cast a demon out of people that he had already given them authority to do, and the, the guy, the dad of the guy comes and says, hey, you're, you're, they couldn't help me. And, and, and Jesus says, because this, time, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. That there are some spiritual battles that require special preparation through prayer and fasting. And so she's like, this is a big thing. This is risky. Uh, It's going to take God to move in a powerful way. So let's prepare in prayer and in fasting. And she says, if I perish, I perish. And we need to obey God regardless of the outcome. That we obey God and we trust Him with the consequences. Jesus said in Mark 8 that whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. And so... God calls us to risk, and we just need to obey God and trust Him with the consequences. Now, here's the thing. 
I am sure that none of us are facing death for obedience to Christ. This week, you weren't like, man, I had a real big decision to make. It was either obey God or die. Or it was obey God and die. No. Most of of our uh, uh, pressure comes from, I don't want people to think I'm weird. I want people to like me. I don't want to be seen as a nut. I just, I just kind of wonder how the, how the great saints of history look at our period of time. They're like, what? I was like faced with going, being thrown into a fiery furnace. And I was being, he over there, he was being faced with being thrown into a lion's den. She was being faced with being killed by the guards who were standing right next to the king. You're afraid they're going to think you're weird? How silly is it, right? We should be courageous, even in the face of rejection. What's the result of her courage? Well, um, the chapter in chapter five goes on. She gets cleaned up. She puts on nice clothes. She gets all ready to approach the king, and uh, and then she stands outside his inner court, and he, by the providence of God, reaches out his scepter to her and invites her in. Not only does he invite her in, he says, hey, queen, so good to see you. What, what do you need? I'll give you up to half the kingdom. What is it? Which I just love that because sometimes we work ourselves into a knot because, because we're thinking about things that aren't ever going to happen. We're just wondering, we're just, we get all tied up. I, I get this too. It's like I, I get so knotted up thinking something's going to happen that doesn't even happen. Because the king shows her favor and graciously opens his arms to her and says, what can I give you up to half the kingdom? And she says, let's do this over dinner. And it is so interesting, as you read the the next couple chapters, she has a banquet with the king and Haman. And she's going to get ready to ask him, to the king, to help with this whole decree. But then she feels like something's not right. And so the king's like, okay, Esther, what can I give you? And she says, let's have dinner again tomorrow night. (laughs) And here's the thing, in the providence of God, that night between the two banquets, that night, the king was restless. And he's like, I need to go to sleep. And so gets a really boring book, like the Chronicles of the Kings, you know. Like, get a really boring book and read it to me. So his servant goes and picks up a book. And out of all the books that he could have picked out of, he grabs the book with the record, because they kept meticulous records. The record of when Mordecai, the Jew, saved the life of the king. And so the king's like, did we ever reward Mordecai? No, we we actually didn't. It's been five years. We haven't done anything for him. He says, oh, no, we've got to do something for Mordecai. We've got to reward this guy. And so then he actually asks Haman, Haman, what would we do for someone who we really want to reward for doing great? Now, Haman, he's a narcissist. So he's thinking, oh, the king wants to reward me. And so he's like, you know what we should do? We should put the king's garments all over him. We should have a parade for him. And everybody honor this guy because he thinks he's getting it. And so the king's like, that's a great idea. Go get Mordecai. 
You can imagine how embarrassing this is. This is mortal enemy. This is the reason why he wanted to kill everybody. So then Haman has to go get Mordecai all dressed up in the king's garb, put him on the horse, and Haman has to, humiliating, right? Then the next night at dinner, the king says, okay, Esther, what is it? What can I do for you? Up to half of the kingdom. And she says, somebody has written a decree to kill all my people. Mordecai, myself, all of us. And the king says, who would do such a thing? And she says, this scoundrel Haman is sitting at the dinner table. And the king says, oh, no, 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 you don't. And so he puts together a plan to save the Jews. Haman starts begging for his life and does some things in the presence of Esther that really irritates the king. And so he has Haman killed, and they put out a decree that all the Jewish people can defend themselves because he can't undo the law. That's how the Persians work. So they can't undo the law, so he has to issue a different decree where all the Jews can defend themselves. And what ends up happening on the day where they were determined to die, the Jews rise up against everyone who hated them. And actually, the enemies of God were slaughtered in mass number on that day. And so what we see is that God's people were saved, that um, God's enemy was punished, and then Esther and Mordecai were exalted. He then made Mordecai second in all of the kingdom. And Esther was highly favored. This is the result of her courage That when you courageously obey God and you use your influence for His kingdom, He takes care of the rest. Where is God in the book of Esther? Although He's not mentioned in the book of Esther, His fingerprints are everywhere. God was working with Queen uh, Vashti to not do what the king asked her to do so that she would be banished and there'd be an opening for queen. And out of, it's estimated, 25 million women in the kingdom at the time. So out of 25 million women and then out of the 400 who entered the competition, one little young Jewish girl gets placed in a position where she can influence the king And what a coincidence that between the banquets when she was going to ask for this favor, the king has a a need to be read to sleep. And out of all the books he could have chose, he chose the one with the details about Mordecai. And so then Mordecai is favored in the eyes of the king. Every detail... And there's more. We don't have time to go in. Every detail of the story of Esther is not coincidence. It's the hand of God working through ordinary circumstances to accomplish his purposes. And if God can use Esther, he can use you. Simply obey the leading of the Spirit and look for opportunities where you are in your school, in your workplace, in your clubs, in your home, in your neighborhood. Look for opportunities. Maybe your neighbor needs a Jesus follower. 
Maybe God's like, you know what, that place, that workplace there, we need a Jesus follower in that workplace. We need someone to shine the light of the gospel there. You see that class, that class, you just thought you were assigned to that class? No, God's like, I need a Jesus follower in that class to shine the light of the gospel in that classroom. Where has God placed you for just a time as this? Here's some reflection questions as we close. What is God up? What is God up to for such a time as this? What is God up? Maybe just these are questions for you to ask yourself to reflect on this message. What is God up to for such a time as this? How does God want to use me for such a time as this? What is the real purpose of why I am where I am for such a time as this? I encourage you to reflect on that this week. You're not where you are by accident. God wants to use you. Be obedient to him this week. Father in heaven, I thank you, God, for the message through Esther. And God, I thank you that by your providence, you saved the, the, your chosen people, the people of promise. God, you orchestrated every detail and used Esther in such a significant way. God, I thank you for her obedience and her courage. And I pray that you would help us to uh, gain perspective this week. That even in the mundane details of life, God, that, that you are working. And I pray that we would see where we are, where you've placed us as a divine assignment. That if you've put us there, there's people there who needs you who needs gospel influence, who needs the light of Jesus. So I pray that you would help us to be aware of opportunities this week to use our influence for the advancement of the kingdom so that more people find eternal life in you, Jesus Christ. I pray if there's anyone in here this morning who has never trusted you for salvation, that today would be the day that they return repent of their sin, and bow a knee before King Jesus as the Lord and Savior, that they would receive life, life to the full. Move through us this week, I pray. In Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen.